The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is such a joy to be with you today as we welcome our very special guest, Mr. Sam Acho. Sam Acho is an NFL player, writer, public speaker, and humanitarian. He speaks widely at colleges, events, and is the host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Home Team Podcast. Love him and that whole crew. He is also the founder and president of Athletes for Justice, and he is the vice president of the NFL Players Association and a graduate of the University of Texas and the Thunderbirds School of Global Management, which I think is very cool. Sam is a great person. We have had the opportunity to cross paths a few times in the years, and he is just a real ray of light in this world. He is always good for a deep conversation or a laugh, and you'll hear all of that today. And I really appreciate Sam being on the show at this point in time because he is not only a very caring person and a very thoughtful person, but also he is right at the forefront of conversations that are happening in the world of sport. And sport is such a mirror to what's happening in society. And so there are huge conversations right now in sports about what to do in the midst of a pandemic and do we kneel and not kneel and how do we confront racial injustice in America? And so he is walking through that with his teammates and he will walk through that with us today. It is such a good conversation. I can't wait for you to hear from Sam. Before we start, if you haven't done so yet, could you please head over to the Apple Podcasts area and rate us favorably and review the show? It really is an effective way for you to throw your support behind these conversations and allow other people to hear great wisdom, wisdom like we get to hear today from our very special guest, Sam Acho. First of all, I love having you on the show. I'm in so many layers a fan of you, and I'm grateful that you did this. And I, I want to start, if we can, by talking football a little bit. Um, and as much as I just want to talk like just football strategy and just talk different teams and people you've played with, I actually broadly, and a, and a bigger question is, you're the VP of the NFL Players Association, which is, for those who may not know, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, this is the, this is the group of players that really represent the voice of of all the players. So where is the majority voice right now um, as you're looking for forward to September playing a very high contact sport in the midst of COVID-19? Yeah. So yeah, all that's correct. I'm the uh, one of the VPs of the Players Association and our job is to negotiate with the owners yeah. about specifically now, what does a safe working environment look like in the midst of a global pandemic? How do you, how do you, get back to work, specifically go play football or practice in the midst of COVID. And yeah. that has pretty much taken up a lot of my time these last few weeks and months. And what it looks like as of now is that a recording right on, on the brink of training camp and, and season getting started. It looks like the season is going to get started on time and training camp is going to get started on time. The biggest issues we're trying to figure out is, is there even a way to stay safe? I think yeah. we saw now the MLB, some of the, the the start of, I think, the Miami Marlins team 
got delayed because player after player after player got tested positive for COVID. And yeah. so we're in this place of how do we not do that? We saw the same thing in college. College football tried to get ramped up a few months ago and all of a sudden coaches and players are testing positive and we're looking at them and saying, how do we not do that? And so we're out almost following the lead, trying at least to follow the lead of the NBA. And yes, they have smaller teams and yes, they're in a bubble. And we know that it'd be really hard for us to be in a bubble, but we're saying, man, how do we keep our players safe in the midst of a pandemic? I know that you're representing a big voice here, but is there actually a path forward where players and by extension, their families can actually be truly safe? Or is this a calculated risk for all involved? Yeah, if I'm being honest, Eddie, it's a calculated risk. And that's, that's what yeah. I've been saying right. from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the, the CDC has told everyone that we should be socially distancing and staying six feet apart and wearing masks. And you can do none of that on a football field. And so right. as right. we were talking about football being essential and staying safe, this is a calculated risk. Every player has to decide. There's 2,000 plus players in the NFL. Each and every player has to decide what is right for him and his family. There are many players who have multiple issues that are on that list of, of risk factors for COVID. Um, they have multiple uh, you know, risk factors. And they're having, having to decide now, is it worth playing? We saw one guy who's an offensive lineman for Kansas City. He opted out just, just a few days ago. He said, hey, I'm not going to do it. He actually has some medical background. He's been working on the front lines the last few weeks and months. He said, I'd rather risk my life serving than to expose myself to COVID playing. And that, that was his decision. And I think, mm. I don't think we're going to see too many more, but I think we see, we'll see a few more players make that, make that tough decision. It's not as simple as just not playing. Like, What are the effects both for the players and for the teams if, if football is just scrapped for this season? Yeah, well, my initial thought, Eddie, was cancel the season. Mm -hmm. Cancel the season. This is a pandemic. It doesn't take names. It doesn't choose sides. If Cancel the season. Basketball was delayed. Baseball, all these things were either delayed or canceled. Let's cancel our season. Then I started talking to some players. <laughs> right, right. And they're saying, dude, if I don't play, I don't have anything. This is what I've been training for my entire life. This is what I've been preparing for the entire offseason. Even during a pandemic, I've been training harder than I did before in order to make sure I was in shape and ready for a season. I need to play. Not only do I need to play, I want to play. I don't have a backup plan. And so the more and more I've talked to a number of guys who want, who play in the NFL and who also want to play in the NFL, some guys who are coming out of college, more and more people are saying, yes, I want to play. So the, And then they're, with that, they're saying, but please, Sam and the rest of the executive committee and the player representatives from each team, help make it as safe as possible. I know it's a, it's a risk. Yeah. Yeah, but help yeah, make yeah. it help make it help make my decision a little bit a little bit really more difficult to say, man, do I really want to play? It's going to be safe. Maybe I can still do it, you know. And there's obviously the economic impact as well. Not only in football, we've seen what happened to so many small businesses are being uh, have had to shut down because of COVID. So we're trying to keep keep ourselves, our families safe, and also keep our communities thriving. Mm. It is certainly a really really complex, and I know the word unprecedented doesn't even mean anything anymore. But unprecedented, just to think a year ago that you would be representing the players in, the, in this conversation, how to, how to navigate a pandemic, how, like, is football even going to be played? I mean, what a crazy spot to be in. Like, how are you doing with all this? Yeah, it's definitely been an emotional roller coaster. I was talking to a friend yesterday, and we were, we were kind of joking, saying, man, six, eight months ago, if you would have seen someone walking around in a mask, 
you would have thought they were crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And now if you don't have a mask, now people are looking at you sideways. And so, right, right. And so emotionally, it's been a roller coaster with, with a little bit of the insecurity of not knowing what the future holds. Now, granted, anybody who knows me, knows a little bit of my story, they know that that's kind of been my story from year to year with sports and other things. I'm not sure what's going to happen. People talk about goals and trajectory. I got goals, but I don't know how it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, yeah, but, yeah. Then, but then you couple that, couple the in, in, un, insecurity with right. with a pandemic and not really being able to be around people has been oh, tough. Yeah. And then you add to that some of this, the, 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 the race, yeah. the racial tension in America. And right. that is a, I would say a micro, a macrocosm of what has kind of gone on in my heart for a good part of my life. Um, just mm. the tension of, of being black and but dealing and living in a lot of white circles, but then also um, having parents who are from Nigeria. So having that like international perspective, but then also mm. playing and, and presiding in black circles so it's almost like imagine it's like Venn diagram of like all the different overlaps and intersection points, and I think what we're seeing in America, a lot of that has gone on in my heart for for a good part of the last few years. Yeah, well, I would love to talk about that because also football is just this, you know, it it just has such a connection point to a reflection of rather of what is happening in America, what is happening in the world, and as as the country is reconciling, as is football, and so it's this interesting parallel to watch almost on a smaller scale, you know, like how is football responding to this? How is football processing playing the season? And as I was struck by looking at the MLB opening day where I was watching my beloved Washington Nationals take on the Yankees and all the players took a knee for Black Lives Matter. I'm sure you saw this. And I'm watching them take a knee, both sides, both squads lined up in a very, it it was, it it wasn't even a protest moment. It was a recognition moment. It was maybe it was protesting, but it, it felt like it was very much an MLB sanctioned moment. They all said Black Lives Matter, you know, on their uniforms. And I just was watching and I thought, what a absolute crazy thing that just a few years ago, you know, Kaepernick is kneeling and just the firestorm that erupted around that and the distance that has happened from Kaepernick to the Washington Nationals. From your perspective, someone who is so deep inside in so many ways, how have you processed the movement of how sports is responding to race in America right now? Yeah, that's a that's a loaded question, but a great a great. It is question. way loaded. I'm sorry, I no, acknowledge it is way loaded. <laughs> no, it's a great question though, because three years ago, taking a knee was the most taboo thing you can do in sports. Yeah, Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee and. He still didn't have a job three years later. Right. There are certain players who who play or played in the NFL that took a knee with Colin Kaepernick, and those guys aren't employed by the NFL anymore. And so to see the shift, to, to see even WNBA players, they walked out before the national anthem. To see the MLB teams, all many of them taking a knee, many of the players on those teams taking a knee. It's been a massive shift and a change in the in the way the conversation is being had. I think we all know with LeBron James a few years ago, there was that comment that was made that he should shut up and dribble. Yeah. And and obviously me being an athlete took offense to that. And I think a lot of my friends took offense to that. But I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing athletes take their place, mm-hmm. not just on the court, but off the court, not just on the field, 
but off the field, not just not just in the clubhouse, but outside of the clubhouse, athletes are taking their place. The way I see it, I think that people are tired of political parties and political and division and politicians dividing. And they're obviously we understand that policies are, how, are what makes things happen. But we're saying, man, like, can somebody just stand up and step up for justice? Can somebody mm. stand up and step up for peace? Can somebody stand up and step up for unity? And it's looking like a lot of athletes are coming and taking their place in the bigger conversation of what is justice and what does that look like? What is unity and what does that look like? What does reconciliation, specifically racial reconciliation, what does that look like in America? I think athletes have the platform to have that conversation because in, in most sports, not all, but uh, predominantly, predominantly majority of the athletes are, 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 are black. And so you're looking at this racial conversation. It's like, all right, guys, now's your time. How does that work on the context of a team, though? Because to think of athletes having a single voice is to really miss the fact that it's a whole diverse, big group of people with different political leanings and different backgrounds. I mean, it's just it's just like America. It's just a whole spectrum of thought. Yet there's this unified presence that happens at, you know, when all Yankees took a knee, when, you know, when the full team decides to do something, how does it happen inside of the clubhouse where players are having to reconcile their own beliefs with how the league is moving? Yeah, well, so I, so I, got, a book, I got a book coming out. One of my favorite chapters is it talks about this specifically. Yeah. It talks about how do you get people from. So to, I'll just tell the story. So 2017, Caps take Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. People are up in arms. NFL is upset. Um, and then fast forward to, I believe it was the beginning of 2018 or maybe the end of 2017, the president made some comments that were to players inflammatory, talking about, man, if anybody takes a knee, those, those players, you know, tell them you're fired and get that SOB off of the field. Yeah. And, and, and so that's just what was said. And a lot of players felt that to their core. I mean, we as a team, I was with the Chicago Bears at the time. Mm. Everyone was ready to take a knee. Mind you, no one had taken a knee before. <laughs> yeah. And at this point, everybody was ready. We were ready. Why? Because that was almost an attack on our collective character, right? So many people have, might have an issue that they care about or a different issue that they care about or one that they feel passionate about or whatever. But this seemed like it was bigger. It was like an attack on, on who we are as, as a group of people. And so specifically to the point of how do you unify, you're right. There were so many people. There was a guy named Benny Cunningham who a black dude from, I believe he's from Tennessee. And he was on the St. Louis Rams when, when Mike Brown was, 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 was killed in Ferguson. Yes. And those players, if you recall, those players came out before the game and protested and Benny didn't. And so fast forward to this moment, Benny said, I'm, I don't care what anybody does. I'm taking a knee. Well, that, so you have him. But then on the other side, you had a guy named Josh Sitton, uh, a, a white guy from Pensacola, Florida, as country yeah. as they come. Yeah. And when the when everything happened with him, he said, I'm, I mean, I, that's not my thing. I, I put my hand over my heart during the national anthem. That's what I do. And that's what I'm going to do. It doesn't matter what anybody says or thinks. And so you have these two right. different people. And, and so but you had to, but then and then you had our, our our the chairman of the team, George McCaskey, who said, hey, I don't care what you all do, um, but whatever you do, you have to do it together. And so the way that we came to our, and we decided to lock arms, that's what we did. But the way we came to that point was through hours and hours and hours of discussion, of conversation, of hearing each other's points and hearing each other's hearts. And then we slept on it, woke up the next day. We were, it was actually the third week of the season, getting ready to play the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that was that 2017 season. We woke up the next morning. Nobody knew what was going to happen when we walked into the locker room. And, 
And I saw Josh, I saw Benny, they both asked me what we're doing. And I told them we're locking arms and the guys got behind it. Some guys wanted to kneel. Some guys wanted to have a hand over their heart. But what the bigger point was, we are together. We are unified. And so, but it, it took, it took listening. It took empathy. It took some people not necessarily getting their agenda, yeah. um, but them understanding that there was a bigger agenda. The other massive NFL story of recent that I'm curious is the decision for the now Washington football team to drop the their original name, which was uh, the Redskins. How do you what do you make of that? And how how does how did that sit with you? This is a very old conversation, old controversy. But I'm curious what where your head was at when you heard the news. I was shocked, honestly, Eddie. I was really. Surprised. Yeah, I was shocked. Yeah, I was shocked because. Uh, a few years ago, Dan Snyder, who's the owner of the, who was the owner of the then Redskins, said, "There's nothing that you all can do to make me change this name. Write it down, mark it down, put it in, put it, blast it on the media. I don't care. I am not changing the name of my football team, of my team." Yeah. And so it just goes to show you what can happen in the midst of three years. Now all of a sudden, the name has been changed. We don't know what it's going to be yet, right? Now, right now, it's the, the Washington Football Team, which I think is corny and lame. It's it's an amazing self-burn that they perpetuated (laughs) on themselves. They could have done, even if it had been Washington Football Club, that could have been slightly cool nod to soccer or something, but no. Yes, yes. so generic. But But I was shocked. I was definitely shocked and surprised. And I think I'm glad that the name is changing. Um, I think that's going to be a step. I think there's more steps that need to be taken in order to help reconcile with the Native American community, the people who were... And, you know, people talk about America being discovered. No, we wasn't discovered. People were living here already before, before Christopher Columbus, right? And so I think, I think that, I mean, I'm glad that the name was changed. I just hope that there's more than just a name. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell me why you decided to buy or were a part of a group of people that bought Belmont Cut Rate Liquors? <laughs> And I asked that question without any po- any follow up. Just why'd you buy that place? <laughs> it's not because I'm a heavy drinker. I promise. No, no, I believe that. No, so yeah, so six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, it just seemed like the world was in shambles. Yeah, and nobody knew what to do. Everybody was upset, sad, angry about about everything. Yeah, everything in our country. And finally, I got some guys together and said, "Let's do something. Let's okay. do something." And, and so we went, we went to the West side of Chicago. The, when I say some guys, I mean like, these are like the superstars from all the different Chicago teams. So like, yeah, Mitch cool. Trubisky, Alan Robinson, who were the, the, the you know, captains from the, from the bears, Jonathan yeah. Taves and Malcolm Subban, who were stars from the Blackhawks, mm-hmm. a couple guys from the bulls, the guy, I mean, Jason Kipnis and Jason Hayward from the Cubs. And I mean, so all these pro athletes came together and we, what we did is we actually sat down and we listened, we listened to some kids in the community to hear from them. What do they need from us? Obviously, it was right on the brink, uh, the tale of George Floyd being murdered, and um, and everybody knew about what was going on with uh, Breonna Taylor, and and even just like the the emotions that were kind of you know yeah. coming Ahmaud, it was on the brink, on the tale of Ahmaud Arbery as well and his murder. And so we said, let's do something. We got together, we sat, we listened, and and we, we what we heard was one thing, right? We heard a need, but we also saw desperation, not in the kids, but in the community. There was nothing there. There was. We counted one grocery store and 10 liquor stores in like a in like a half mile radius. And actually the stats say there's two grocery stores and 17 liquor stores. And that makes it a food desert. And so we said, what if we got some money together and what if we bought up one of the liquor stores and turned it into a food mart? And so we did. And so we did. About We had that That's idea. That's crazy. Yeah, man. man. It's crazy, man. So we had that idea about five, six weeks ago. And four weeks after that idea happened, 
we were with, I invited Roger Goodell, we invited the mayor, we invited the superintendent of the Chicago Police Department, along with all the different pro athletes. And we had a liquor store tear down party <laughs> uh, to celebrate this. And so that's that, you know, I, I, it, it is an emotional thing for me because yeah. I, I literally didn't know what to do. I was I was ready to I didn't I mean, it was do I tweet something out? Do I right. go and do I protest? Do I go and start a not like start an organization? What do I do? Do I go and change laws? And so I think the biggest thing for me was what if we just got people together? I love getting people together. What if we just got people together and, and listen, and, and that's what we did. But man, it takes more work, doesn't it? Like you could have just, this was more than a throwing money thing, which right, finances matter, what you do with your money matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but you all, there's a personal stake in this, right? I mean, not only were you a part of the teardown, but this is a place that will, will have to continue uh, long beyond the news stories that came out on the photo shoot. So Tell me what it what it became like the community grocery store. Like what what makes it um, specifically a, a what does a new grocery store do to a place like the west side of Chicago? Yeah, like, well, I understand food desert, but take me inside of it because I think most people just don't really understand what the food desert concept actually manifests itself with. Definitely, definitely. Like, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we talked to some of the kids, and first of all, the kids are going to be running it. So some of the kids from there's a nonprofit we work with in Chicago called the By the Hand Club for Kids, which I've known them for three, four years and been spending time with not only the organization, but specifically uh, there's a young girl named Azaria who's about 15 now, who's unbelievable. Um, and so I guess what it looks like is, is listening to their lead and following them. We asked them when this idea came about, we said, where do you get your food from, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, there was one grocery store and, 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 and really two, and both of them were boarded up because of the riots. So he asked, yeah. but even before, outside of rides, where do you get your food from? And many of the, many of the kids there said, well, we get our food from the gas station. Yeah. And other, other, some of the kids said, they said, well, we, we, we get our food from McDonald's. Others said, we have to drive 45 minutes, 45 minutes if we want to go get something that's healthy or organic. Right. A fresh piece of produce. Exactly. Just the, the basic things that we will get in our HelloFresh box without actually thinking, right? Exactly. Like, Exactly. They have to. They, it is easier for those kids that you were working with to get extremely unhealthy food that has. I mean, what talk about that? What's the long term? What's the consequence of eating that kind of food? Because yeah, this matters. Definitely, yeah. we talk about obesity. You talk about um, hypertension. You talk about um, just the the your life expectancy shortens when everybody knows. I mean, if I'm a pro athlete, I can work out as much as I want. 80% of, of, uh, of my, if 80 of, of my health, the, what matters most is what you eat, yes. right? People talk about the, it's the 80-20 rule. I can lift and run and all these things, but if I'm eating junk, I'm going to look like junk and feel like junk, and inside my body, it's going to be junk. And so like, what matters when it comes to being fit, it's 80% of, it's 80 diet. And so if all you get, if all you have to, at your disposal is food that comes from a gas station or, food that come, or, or, or fast food like McDonald's, and what do you, like, you're, you, you, you have no shot. You have no shot. And so what this is, it's, it's going to be two things. Number one, it's going to be healthy food for kids in the community. Number two, or num and more than that, they're going to be actually running it, getting entrepreneurial experience, job experience, uh, et cetera. But then secondly, I think that building things uh, is a sign of investment, right? Like they're, yes. with that nonprofit, they actually built a, a facility in the, on the west side of Chicago and really one of the, used to be one of the roughest neighborhoods. And ever since that, or that, that facility was built, that young girl, Azaria, she said, man, ever since y'all came into my, my neighborhood, my neighborhood has felt a lot homier, is what she said, right? 
And so the way I see it, right, you've got that facility there, this nonprofit um, that that's the living room, right? Well, let's put the kitchen in there, right? Let's put the kit, let's get this grocery, let's put, let's get this kitchen in there. We can continue to build and expand more and more and even more. Man, Sam, that's beautiful. Um, I'm struck by you and even a cursory Google search of you finds, I mean, like page one of your Google search results and don't Google yourself. I mean, unless you're, (laughs) you know, but like for you, it's a little bit of football news, but it's as much, if not more about your philanthropy from community grocery to the work you you do with IJM, which thank you, by the way, to Living Hope Christian Ministries that your parents are a part of. I mean, more stuff than we actually have time to go through in a whole interview. It, it struck me how much of your life and your influence and honestly, your resources, your money, all of the stuff that you've got, you leverage for not yourself. Well, maybe it is for yourself, but it's outside of yourself for philanthropy. Why is that, Sam? Yeah, well, I think it's the way that God wired me. <laughs> I don't know how else yeah. to put it. My parents started a nonprofit 30, 31 years ago. And look, I'm 31 years old, right? The same year they started this nonprofit was the same year I was born. Their nonprofit deals with uh, medical centers in Nigeria. We, they actually opened up a uh, Living Hope Medical Center in Nigeria because they would, you know, both my parents are in the medical field. My dad is a doctor. He has his PhD in psychology, but my mom is a doctor and nurse practitioner. They're from Nigeria, from different villages out there. Uh, they came to America and they saw a need. Uh, they saw that people in Nigeria would die from little illnesses that are stripped to like a Walgreens could cure. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, so, yeah. And so they decided to do something about it. And so I've been seeing them do this for my entire life. And so when I kind of happened to stumble into the NFL, I'm not going to say stumble, but God opened up a door for me to go in the NFL. It was like, dude, I'd be, do, I'd be what I'm doing now, the phil- philanthropy work or whatever you want to call it. I'd be doing that regardless of whether I was in the NFL or not, right? Like, I don't care. Right. Like, even as I'm playing, I'm doing this. And when I'm not playing, I'm doing this. And even before I was playing, I was doing this. I went on my first trip with my parents when I was 15. I went on my first medical mission trip to this village in Nigeria. And when I was 15, I saw a little kid who I thought was probably nine or 10 years old. And his name was Sam. And my name is Sam. Mm-hmm. And we started talking. And I didn't know how old he was. I just knew he was malnourished, had a dingy t-shirt on because they're literally like a like a pullover and some sandals that he probably had been wearing for the last three years straight and we're talking 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 i'm thinking he's eight or nine years old i say i say man how old are you and he says i'm i'm 15 oh no way and i'm like huh yeah and i look at him say wait what's your name he says my name is sam and i'm like no 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 this no this no 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 not doing this today because here's the deal i didn't choose my parents. My parents were born and raised in in that village in Nigeria, and God opened up a door for them to come to America, right? So that could have been me. So so, and I'll say that once again. That easily that Samuel, because my name is Samuel, right? That right. Samuel oh, yeah. from that village who was malnourished, who had the same shirt, the same shorts, the same sandals, very little food. He didn't. Pick There's a them. real clear set of circumstances that that you and that kid are in a different switching places or you're just in that kid's place. Like exactly. It is not a leap to think that that, that could have been you easily. Oh, with the, with the, yeah. It's literally like snap a finger and that's me. And so yeah, yeah. it's not even who am I to, well, how great are you to do this? No, who am I? How, how could I not do, not even call it the work? Like this is my heart, man. This is the, the heart that God gave me. And so, and so, yeah, that's, I think that was really a key moment for me in understanding kind of who I was called to be and meant to be. There's something so fundamental about, both just being exposed to the world. We've had so many people on the show say, 
like, I, I don't know how to tell you what to do, but you need to travel. And of course, we're all locked down. But when we're unlocked, you know, the, the advice was just travel, see the world. You got to understand what the world is like and you, you'll you be compelled to help. But the other part of it, too, is what a testament to your parents to instill that in you at such a young age, because that becomes forming to you as you're trying to figure out who you're going to be as an adult. But also, it's just it's part of your DNA, because essentially your answer was just like to my question was basically like, well, because it's just what we do. And you're like. Yeah, that's that's a that's that's a, a real testament to your character and to them. Um, uh, you wrote a book, and it's coming out in October. I can't wait to read it, and we're excited about it. I know you're going to be talking about it a bunch, so I don't want to like give too much away. But it's called "Let's uh, Let the World See You: How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes," which is just like a dagger in the heart kind of title. Um, without giving too much away, can you give a little sneak peek into why you? you decided to write this and why now? Yeah, well, who? Um, this book is, 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 is my heart on a page. And yeah. what I mean by that is the same pain and fear and doubt and anxiety and frustration that people feel when they hide, I felt that. And what I mean by hide specifically is I mean not being who you were meant to be. A lot of us, I feel like we know and we like we have that feel like, man, I feel like I could be pretty good at this, or I like this, or I want to do this. And those things get shut down. Yeah. And then we shut down emotionally. And that was me. Even in football, people say, man, you're playing in the NFL. This is great. And, and it wasn't great. There was so much that wasn't great. And it wasn't until I started to really be me. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I had a friend who I was going into my, you know, my eighth or ninth year in the NFL and I just signed like this big multi-year, like multi-million dollar contract, like the dream of every NFL player when you're a kid. And I was miserable. Yeah. I was miserable. And I was sitting at a, at a restaurant with one of, my, one of my buddies just in tears because I felt like my marriage was falling apart and my, my relationship with my kids wasn't what I thought it was supposed to be and all these things. And I was crying. And as I'm crying, this is a guy who I've actually spent a lot of time with. He knows me really well. We've worked on stuff together. He's seen the, the nice and shiny and glittery Sam. And he looked at me in my tears and my pain and my sadness. He said, it's nice to see you. <laughs> and I, I was like, what do you mean? He said, it's nice to see you. It's nice to see you and know that you're human. This whole time you've, you know, we, we all have this human element to us, but so many of us try to put on a mask and it's good to know that you are real. And mm. hearing him say that really opened up a door. I actually started talk, going to talk to uh, uh, one, well, one, really one of my mentors. Um, he, he, he called me and, and we were talking and, and he was just sharing with me just about life. And, and I, what I didn't realize was that this conversation would be one of the last I had with him because he, he had cancer and he was fighting it and not, we thought it was going well, but it wasn't. Yeah. And, and he reminded me of a truth that I am worth getting to know and that we all are worth getting to know. And, and uh, I think that was another moment as well. And just this idea of, man, like, it's good to see you, you know, the real you, not the, not the put up, put together. No, I want to see the real you because I think the real you really can bring joy and fulfillment um, not only to yourself, but the people around you. I'm glad you wrote it. I can't wait to read it, man. I'm proud of you for putting that out. That is to put your heart on a page is both, I would imagine, an intense thing to do and to write, but also it must be wild to feel it being released out into the world. Because it's one thing to have that page just be on your computer quietly alone. It's another thing to have just the world start to read it. Yeah, good, good job, man. 
Last question. I asked this question probably in the beginning of, I think, March, the first time when the whole, you know, when COVID started to happen and then when the Black Lives Matter movement really became much, much louder. And, and uh, it's been so interesting hearing the different perspectives from different guests. But, uh, and I'm really curious to hear what you think with everything that's happening in 2020 uh, and the movement that's happening. I'm curious if you feel like this is a moment or something bigger, like part of uh, a, a real groundswell of change in terms of like equality. Yeah, I think this is bigger. I really do. And I know yeah. a lot of people feel like it's a moment or a movement. Obviously, the word movement implies that things are moving and they could pass by. But I think this is bigger. For me, I feel like uh, just like the tectonic plates underneath the surface of the earth have shifted. I feel like there's been a major shift. And we've seen it in these last three years with athletes particularly, but even generally with the general public is that people understand that reconciliation must happen something must be done. And I don't think we're any longer in the place of, of ignoring the pain of, of our brothers and sisters, whether it be um, Black people in this country, yeah. whether it be like any marginalized group in this country, I feel like people are now ready to speak up for it. Now, what I, what I, what I will say is that I understand that sometimes people get tired, you know, like, yes. and I've been fighting and moving and you know, I've been an activist or working for social change and I'm tired and I get that that happens. Um, but I think that I think and I hope and I pray that this will be much more than a moment or than a movement. It will really be that we will really see massive change uh, in our country and, and by extension in the world. Well, I am deeply grateful to Sam. I hope that you are following him on social. If not, go to his website, samacho.com. That's in the show notes. Make sure you're following him on social. Make sure you pre-order his book. He is just one of those people that I pay attention to for perspective, for wisdom, for interesting stuff about what's going on in the world of sports, for philanthropy. I just really like Sam. Also, New Activist has a website, newactivist.is. You can head there, find all of our social media information, all the different ways that you can listen to the show. And we are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of that good stuff. Would love to hear your thoughts about the show throughout the week. As always, a massive thank you to Propaganda, an incredible artist. He scored today's episode. You can find out more about his music, his merch, his love and deep obsession with coffee, all of that can be found at prophiphop.com, again, in the show notes. As a quick reminder, if you could please go and rate and review The New Activist on Apple Podcasts, it is an incredible way to let people know about the show. Your five stars and encouraging words are very, very helpful. Also, recommend future guests there. We have gotten some great recommendations and followed up on those. So please recommend guests. Give us some stars. Thank you. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Sam Acho, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>